everyone, it's Caleb, and welcome to the Learner's Corner Podcast. Today, I am uh, so excited for you to be here with me today. I am joined by Mark Sayers, and we're going to talk with him about his brand new book called A Non-Anxious Presence, and I'll tell you a little bit more about that here in just a moment. If this happens to be your first time listening to the podcast, I want to let you know that there's three things that drive pretty much everything that we do here in the podcast, and it's Firstly, this is that we want to create a safe place to have difficult conversations because there are many important conversations that need to be had. And uh, as you probably have gone throughout life, that even though it's an important conversation, uh, you may not feel like you can have certain conversations with uh, with certain people. And so what we want to do here is create the type of place to create the type of environment to create a safe environment to where we can disagree respectfully uh, and dialogue around uh, what can sometimes be uh, tricky or maybe even uh, difficult conversations as well. The second thing is this is that we truly believe that we can learn from anyone and from everyone regardless of whether or not we agree with them 100%. And the last one is this is that we believe that we can learn from anything and from everything, you know, from any subject, from every subject, because everything has something to teach us and everything has something that we can learn from as well. And so, as I mentioned today, I am talking with Mark Sayers about his brand new book called A Non-Anxious Presence. And the subtitle is How How a Changing and Complex World Will Create a Remnant of Renewed Christian Leaders. And, you know, I've been following Mark for a long time and he's just somebody that I uh, very much respect. I love some of his thoughts and learning about uh, some of the things that he's thinking about, which we get into in the conversation um, because he just seems to be like towards the, towards the edge or just seeing, seeing things that happen before they happen. And I, uh, I love learning about those things. I like, I love learning about, um, the, the things to come, what's, what's going to uh, pass hereby soon. And so let me tell you a little bit about Mark and then we'll jump into the conversation. Mark Sayers is the senior leader of Red Church and the co-founder of Uber Ministries. He is particularly interested in the intersection between Christianity and the culture of the West. Mark lives in Melbourne, Australia with his wife, Trudy, and their daughter and twin boys. He has also uh, authored uh, several other books, including, I think it's uh, Re Disappearing Church. Disappearing Church is uh, one of them. And he's, he's authored a, a couple others as well. Um, he also is on the co-host, the co-host of the Rebuilders podcast, which is a must- uh, listen, I always enjoy listening to the podcast, that podcast in particular, uh, just because I love listening to uh, just some of Mark's thoughts as it pertains to the church and to the world and how uh, how things are changing as well all throughout uh, the world. And so without any further wait, let's jump into my conversation with Mark Sayers. Mark, it's good to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast. Yeah, fantastic to be here. Yeah, and just as we're getting started, you know, one of the questions that I love to uh, start with or ask people from time to time is I would just love to ask you what is currently like capturing your curiosity or your attention or imagination right now? Yeah, I guess I'm really interested about how power operates in, in cultures and how it changes over time. And there's a lot of that happening at the moment. So I've been fascinated to look at what are other points in history where the similar things have happened. So I'm actually reading about the sort of 17th century in England where they had a, a civil war and just fascinated about, you know, reading about that at the moment, seeing some of the parallels to perhaps now. So, yeah, so it's um, that's probably the main thing that's really I'm fascinated by in my head. I keep thinking about when I'm when I'm on a train or something. Yeah. Talk, yeah. Tell, talk to me more about that and like what's standing out to you about it. Well, I think um, basically at that time you had um, you know a long established power, which was the British, um, you know, royal um, crown, and they'd started a parliament. So it was interesting. The people wanted a parliament, 
And all of a sudden you had a competitor to power. And then slowly you realize that once there's two sites of power, like a declining power and an emerging power, that there's going to be a battle at some point. <laughs> and uh, what I found interesting is also at the same time, the printing press, which had been going for a little while, but was really getting going. So in, in London, for example, there was all these people making what they call you know, pamphlets. So a little bit it's like the internet that you had this very information-rich environment. And so it was interesting that the sort of Puritans or the, you know, the Calvinist evangelicals of that time, in many ways, were super politically radical, very egalitarian in terms of their politics, very, uh, you know, about an equal playing field in terms of economics. Um, and you had all these radical groups like the levelers and the diggers. And, and it's funny, like Baptist was like calling someone a Bolshevik or something, which is which was fascinating. So uh, you had that sort of power. But what I found is interesting is they eventually killed the king. They, they executed Charles I. But then what happens is once the declining power is sort of knocked out, that was the crown, all of a sudden the emerging power starts to fight amongst themselves. So you see the opposition start to split. And it gets so chaotic to the point where basically um, after they had the Republic, you know, the UK became a Republic for a period, they invited the, the son of the King back, Charles II. So you see this very much interesting sort of revolutionary pattern. The revolutionaries get in, the revolutionaries start fighting against each other, other revolutionaries fight the revolutionaries, and then you sort of return to a sense of order. So yeah, so I'm just trying to sort of work out all the phases of that. And yeah, just wondering how that plays out in our time. Mm. So and, and again, I know that you're still like kind of in like the processing stage mm. of that, but like, what are the implications that you were seeing that like for you and like how that affects like your, your life and how to navigate mm. through that? Yeah. Well, I think, I think understanding what's happening in the world, I think we can get very issue based, which, you know, it's important ideas and issues are important, but I think like when you see these historical parallels where hang on the same dynamics are in play. Um, it enables me to step back. Um, so whether it's an issue that, you know, I may be having a local level, seeing what's happening in the world, seeing what's happening in my country um, or other countries, it gives me some perspective and realise that, you know, these things happen throughout history and um, there's patterns. And I don't think the patterns always repeat exactly, but I just think it's, it's really helpful to sort of get away from, because I think once you're, often ideas are very emotive and, and once you're in them, it's like a battle. But when you step back and go, oh, okay, uh, you know, you get some distance from it, which I think is really helpful. What helps you step back from that ideas? Yeah, I, I think it's seeing that humans have been here before, that there's certain structural things that are in, are in play. Um, and uh, it, it gains, I guess, it disconnects some of the emotion from it. I think that we, we inevitably have this wrong thinking um, where we think, oh, there's this trend at the moment and either it's, increasing in strength or declining in strength. So we think that what's going to happen, what's happening now in 10 years time, it's going to be exactly the same, but like more intensely <laughs> um, when actually I think things change, you know, and even just going back to uh, the 17th century in England, what's so fascinating is that the Presbyterians who um, originally sort of against the king, they actually end up aligning with the royals near the end because they're sort of like you know so things change and people change and ideas change and i find that interesting that that there's sort of like what you're excited about today the people who you're arguing with or, or see worry about may change their minds very very quickly you know uh you know one one of the things that i was just going through you know your book a non-anxious presence and is you talk about uh you know, and you mentioned it very briefly, you know, in, uh, in, uh, first Chronicles, uh, chapter 12, I think where you talk about the tribe of Issachar and, you know, you said, you say that, um, you know, they, they knew the times and they acted accordingly. And one of the things that I would just love, and I feel like we're, we're even talking about it maybe a little bit, um, is how can you get a better understanding of the times that we're mm. in, especially whenever they're changing so, mm. like very rapidly, it seems like, mm. Well, I think I think two two things I find really helpful. One is gaining that we've, which we've mentioned that that critical distance, um, and I think there's two main ways that happens. One is other cultures, and the other is history. So we've been talking about history here, but I think understanding that you know we are you know a part of a small phase of history. You know, the average person still sort of lives you know seventy or odd so years. That you know when you look at the stretch of history, that's a very small amount. So seeing how these forces and these things have played out through history, where they, how, how the origin of ideas 
and where they're going. Um, you know, I, a classic example, you know, I, I study a lot of culture stuff and, you know, I was really deep in it. So I just started reading a history book um, to sort of, uh, you know, escape from it. Just before I go to bed, I sometimes read something and well, I, I always read something before I go to bed, so, but something not connected to what I'm <laughs> studying. And I read this history book um, about Britain in the sort of late 70s. And what I was struck by was how similar all the stuff was. Um, you know, they were talking about, you know, should Britain be in the EU? Um, you know, the stuff in youth culture, there were people complaining about um, sort of like the emergence of postmodernism in universities and what that meant. And um, there was heaps of racial issues in Britain at that time. And there'd been a number of sort of protests. And I was like, oh my goodness, this sounds exactly what so many things are happening now. Like you think, oh, this is new stuff, but actually often we just repeat these, these issues. The second one is, I think, culture. And I think Finally, part of part of what my role I found myself in is, you know, speaking to churches in the US or Canada or or Europe or the UK, and partially I think because I'm an Australian, there's a similarity to other cultures, but then there's a difference. You know, Australians think very differently about the world, and um, so I think you know I can see things that perhaps someone can't see in their culture, and conversely, um, I'm really interested when people come here to Australia and go, oh, you guys do that. And um, there was a story that I saw in the paper yesterday about a young American woman who flew into Australia and um, the guy who drives the bus to the hotel uh, put on the announcement, hey, everyone, um, I just need five minutes to grab a coffee. Is everyone happy waiting for five minutes? And this young American woman was thinking, oh, people are going to get angry. They've been on an 18-hour flight. And all the others were like, yeah, no worries, mate. Take five. And she was shocked, you know, and, and that exposes an Australian thing where, you feel very uncomfortable if someone's driving you around or doing anything for you because it's very egalitarian thing. And because we've got this culture of mateship, um, it's like, yeah, you're our mate, even though we don't know you. So yeah, have five minutes. Um, so it's just one of these things like, oh yeah, we do that. Oh, goodness me. So I think they're two really helpful ways I've, I've found to, to get critical distance. Mm. You know, just just what came to my mind is like, that's, that's not like the natural disposition that that people hold is to you know not pay attention they don't pay attention to history or other people's cultures i would love to hear from you of what have you what have you gained from paying attention to history and from other people's cultures i think i think the first thing is perspective um so i think you, you can put things in a right perspective and that's probably what we've been hinting at i think the second thing is understanding like i think we do lots of things where we don't realize we're doing something because it's our culture. And I think I've gained understanding of other cultures and I've gained understanding of my culture, but also you gain understanding of yourself. And you realize there's these things, you know, there's, there's the old statement, don't ask a fish for a definition of water. And, um, you know, I, I realized, you know, I'll be in another place and I'm doing something. I'm like, oh my goodness, that's not just a Mark Sayers thing. That's actually what an Australian does. So you see this insight into yourself and then you look at other things like, you know, you look at your family history, you look at where you, it's not just your culture, but where in your culture, you know, you've grown up, you're part of town or your background or whatever. And so, yeah, I think it's, I think it's perspective, but a, a wide arrangements of perspective. And then I think also that's really helpful spiritually as well, because it, it gains, like you see the eternal, when you see how much things change, the big sweep of history, you begin to see the importance of, I think, you know, eternity and, and how that interacts with, with now yeah what helps you figure out like hey this is just like a mark thing versus like mm. this is a uh an australian thing or even mm. like your local town thing yeah yeah i think it's when you see other people doing the same thing um and uh like i remember like again using that example of how you deal with um, figures like you know i noticed when i landed in los angeles i often travel to the states and we come into los angeles because the pacific port and uh, land at the airport at LAX. And I noticed like I would go up and, and I would talk to the Homeland Security guys. And in Australia, you all power is diffused. So, so for example, like a, a policeman gave me a ticket once because I was on my phone. And when he's giving me a ticket, he's like, sorry, mate, you're on your phone. Yeah, like really sorry about this, mate. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. Yeah, so he, like, he's diffusing and I'm like, yeah, sorry, mate. I didn't mean it. So everybody, you bring power down and you, and you talk, use the word mate a lot. So I remember being in the line and what I used to do is go to Alex and my first thing is like, I'm going to make them feel uncomfortable if I'm treating them like an authority figure. So I thought that's something I did. So you're like, Hey, you going, you know, how's your day? How you going, mate? You know, 
And I remember these two guys in front of me, two Aussie guys, same age as me, and they went through and the LAX Homeland Security guy just was so angry at them. And I realized, no, hang on, I've got to switch out of my brain and I've got to see them as an authority figure. So now I go to LAX and I switch across the border and I switch cultural modes and I'm like, yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. <laughs> you know, it's just helpful when you see, oh, they're doing what I'm doing. So I think when you see others doing it, it's a pattern. If it's just something you uniquely do, it could be you. Yeah. Are there, and again, there, there may not be anything here, but I would, be, mm. I would be curious to hear, are there any like skills that you've developed that help you better understand like the history that you're going through and whenever you're um, in or experiencing other people's cultures? Mm. I think getting background is really helpful. So for example, if I go to a country um, and I'm going to say speak there or whatever, I read and, you know, I try and read just a few books on the history, understand that place, that culture. The second thing I do, and sometimes even just an article, what's the culture of this place, you know? Um, and so I get some reading background, but then what I love to do is when I go to a city, often, you know, because Australians have to fly far, you, you, I tend to give myself a day to walk around, sort of, you know, adjust to jet lag, just walking around listening, feeling it on the street, because often you'll hear the history and then there's the feel on the street and, and getting a wide array. So for example, you know, you may be drawn to certain parts of a city, but then what's the other parts of a city look like? You know, two people can live in one city and have totally different experiences. So, you know, get outside of your experience. So a lot of it is observing, listening to what people are saying, asking people like, you know, you know, what's it like in a city at this moment? Because um, cities change. So I think listening, observing, reading, um, I think are the, are the key things. Hmm. Man, I feel you've already given me a lot to think about uh, just in this <laughs> conversation. Um, but I do want to talk about, you know, your new book, A Non-Anxious Presence. Mm -hmm. And I I love hearing the story or like the series of events that led someone to go, hey, I, I need to put this this work of art mm -hmm. in the world. And I would just love to hear that from you of what made you want to write A Non-Anxious Presence. Mm. Well, I just finished a book in, uh, I've been released in 2019, um, called Reappearing Church. I think I was tired. I think it was my seventh book. And and then I had just been sort of speaking and traveling about it and, and been overseas a few times. And, and uh, then the pandemic hit. Um, and uh, when the pandemic hit, I just couldn't think about writing a book. And I thought, there's no way I'm writing a book in lockdown. And um, and then we sort of came out uh, in, in here in, in my city, Melbourne. Um, we started to sort of come out at the end of the year. So we finally sort of came out of things. And actually what happened with Australia, which got to COVID zero, shut the border, got the cases right down. So we had a period at the end of 20, 2020 where we had no cases. So it sort of returned to normal. And then just at that point, I'd had the year of 2020 not traveling, but I'd spent so much time speaking to leaders across the world. So what happened was, I think people thought, oh, Mark, we'd have to pay him to get on a plane. We can just have a Zoom meeting. So I had just incredible meetings with you know leaders in, in, in every almost every continent. And what I noticed, there were things they were all worrying about. And the sense of change that the pandemic had brought, the sense of not, it wasn't just a pandemic, but the pandemic had seemingly exacerbated pre-existing problems in every culture. So, for example, in the US, there was lots of, um, you know, talk about polarization, the issue of race had really come to the fore in 2020. But then you're talking to people in India, you know, and it's the citizenship bill and it's, you know, the direction of um, the BJP government. Um, but you saw this everywhere. So I just began to see what, what leaders were dealing with, with this sense of anxiety that, yes, there's a pandemic, but more than that's changing. And so I think a lot of what I'd studied and read um, you know, in, in the period just before that is how do you lead in the midst of crisis and change? I had a sense that in my study that all of the structures of the world were significantly changing and that a connected world, uh, a more diverse and complex world is actually going to be a more chaotic world. So I began to, I had sort of began to think just in the back of my head for about two years, how do we, how do we prepare people for what's coming? Um, and, you know, I thought it could be multiple things. I could be war massive cyber attacks, pandemics, environment, whatever. So I was thinking stuff would start happening. I think the pandemic accelerated the timetable of that. So at the end of 2020, I was like, man, I've got to help leaders think through this. And then just began to think about that, said yes to writing a book. And then we went back into the lockdown, you know, and we were in a massive lockdown in 2021. So a lot through that, I was like, why did I write a book in lockdown? <laughs> Kids homeschooling, um, 
you know, we couldn't in Melbourne go more than three miles from our home. So it was, it was pretty intense. And, but I think that as well, you're writing about an idea, but then you're leading. So I'm, I'm a pastor and I'm leading a church, which barely met in two years, which was our own crisis, like so many churches went through. So it was just the, the perfect storm to write that book in the best sense of the word. Um, yeah. So that's really, I guess, the story. And I, and I felt too, like, there's a lot of people I felt were like, pandemic will end and everything will go back to the 2019 world. And I just thought it's gone now. Like it's, 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 we're into a new phase. And yeah, that was the other, the other thinking behind it. Talk to me about that dynamic that you, you had mentioned briefly of you're trying to figure out this stuff for yourself in yeah. order to help other people. And it's like, well, you're still trying to figure that out too. Talk to me about that dynamic and like leading through, like mm. leading yourself and leading other people through that. Yeah, it was intense. Like, um, so I, I mean, I think that's the best learning. I think the worst kind of learning is someone in an ivory tower who throws down a theory from above, which they've never walked out. And I think I always have that dynamic because I write about culture and write about things but then also I'm a pastor. So often I'll have the experience, I'll come up with some great idea and, you know, I'll write it down and then and then I get talk to my team and they're like, nah, this, <laughs> this is so out there, you know. Uh, so I've always got that process, but this was that super intensely. And, um, you know, I, I it was it was hard. Like it was really hard to, to write this book. It was it was hard to, to run the church, but I just felt like I had to push more into God's, you know, presence and dependence and my dependence upon him. So I think that it 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 may what I what I could do is just say, here's all the problems, but what it did was push me into the solution. Um I either I either, I either was going to go into a solution or I was just going to like fall over. Um yeah. Okay. I, I do want to I would do want to talk about the solution side uh, in a little bit. Mm. But uh, I want to tease out the pro the problem side mm. a little bit more. Um I think another uh big idea that you write about in there is you talk about the gray zone. And how that yes. contributes to our anxiety as well. Can you yes. talk about that? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think that people love to think of phases. And and if I said, what I realized is I couldn't, I knew we were leaving an era. I had no doubt about that. Um, and the era we were leaving was one where, you know, the world had been connected. Um, you know, it, it um, uh, had had in a sense like, uh, grown economically, things things had changed. And you had that sense. Like I remember sort of like 2017, 2018, I remember traveling in the world and you can use your Uber app sort of almost anywhere now. The stores were looking the same. It was this very comfortable life. It was like the world seemed to be delivering this, this new reality for people. And then basically what happened was, you know, I, I sensed that that phase was ending. So, I mean, you could sort of say that's, you know, possibly the 2010s or, you know, the, from 2000 to, you know, I, I don't know where it starts, but I realized that that phase was ending. So my next question was like, what phase are we entering into? You know, is, is there a new phase beginning? And let's have this great name. We're now in the so-and-so era. Boom, here it is. You know, write the book about it. Everyone's happy and, you know, everyone can name it. But what I realized is it wasn't that neat and clean. It was like, periods of the previous world were existing, but then new things were emerging. And what I realized that we actually were, we were in a transition between two phases. I think there will be a new phase, but we're at the moment where power is transferring, transfer, transferring from uh, the, you know, the people who had power in the previous phase to where power is going now. So I realized we're actually in this gray zone. Uh, this, this, that's a word I use from, um, used in a lot of military you know, talk at the moment. So, for example, when Russia did its incursion in, into um, Crimea in 2014, no one knew if a war began. Everyone's asking the question, like, troops have turned up, they've taken over installations, they're not wearing badges. Is this war or is this peace? We sort of knew it wasn't peace. We didn't know it was war. It was something in between. So that's very much the sense I think we're in now. We can see that the world that we've been part of is fading, but there's still elements there, you know. Like, so, for example, here... Uh, in in like so many cities, um, you know, when the pandemic began, Melbourne's very centred on its central business district, like downtown. Um, people just left that area. You know, we were we were thinking of starting a congregation, like down because there's so many young adults there. But then they moved. But you could see almost this period during the pandemic where it was like, oh, people are going to come back to the city, but now they're realising that they're not. So it was this big debate of like, well, they're either going to leave the city, we're going to have to turn into something else, or they're going to come back. But what they're talking about now is people are going to come into the city on some days. <laughs> you know, and I heard this about London. People are saying like, 
you know, London's now become a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday city for workers. You know, they spend Friday and, and Monday at home. So that's like, what's that? It's neither. Like it's, we're in this, and that's so many examples you could use that. We're in this like halfway place. So I thought a halfway place is confusing because if we knew the new era was here, we could go, oh, okay, here's the new rules. But when the old rules are sort of half in play and the new rules are half emerged, it's really confusing. So I wanted to capture that sense of this of this point in time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which leads to more anxiety happening in people because 100%. like I even just had the thought of like in the gray zone, like you can see something new, but that might just be new for the gray zone and it might not like when things settle, it might it might be different. Totally. You can have these new dynamics kicking off that you think, oh, this is the new big thing, but it's it just appears and goes, you know. Like I was at the at the mall um, yesterday, and this is a mall I've not been to because of the pandemic for two years. And I noticed that they're built now into the building, like the hand sanitizers, like you come up the, into the, you know, from your car and, and, and part of me is like, is that going to stay? Like, and I, I, was, I was with my wife and said, are they going to stay forever? Or is that going to be gone in a year? I don't know. Is this a new thing we'll do for the next 20 years or, or it will be gone in 12 months? I don't know. So yeah, so you could write this whole thing on, the, you know, the importance of hand sanitizers and help, but who knows? Uh, um. I'd love to talk about what are some other ways that you have seen anxiety show up that, um, you know, sometimes anxiety can be very easy to spot. And sometimes it's like, mm. oh, I I didn't notice it until looking back on it. What are some ways that mm. you're seeing anxiety show up that might not be typical? Yes. Yeah. Great question. Well, I think we, I've almost seen three phases of anxiety. The first one was, I think people realizing, you know, and, and meeting people who perhaps, you know, and I sort of had this 15 years ago, 20 years ago of people like I have an anxiety disorder, you know, an individual goes through some stuff in their life. They realize they have an anxiety disorder. The doctor or psychiatrist diagnoses that. But I noticed maybe 10 years ago, there was this cultural anxiety, but it was like a, a cultural anxiety of people personally experiencing it. Mm-hmm. So you heard more and more people dealing with anxiety, particularly young people, even children pets <laughs> you know there's all these articles about pets being anxious and and pills for pets and 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 uh but then i noticed i think the third stage which i think we're in now so i think people are still dealing with oh there's anxiety everywhere it's, it's a personal thing and is it a personal thing absolutely but there's a tipping point where in most societies with psychiatric illnesses only a percentage will have them if it goes beyond that percentage something else is happening um and when i read that i thought oh that's really interesting um and I think what we are now is that anxiety is, is invading everything. So politics is a classic example. If you, if you look at politics now, um, so much of it is anxiously driven. It's fear. It's it's anger. It's it's emotional. You know, you you, you look at previous here, previous periods in history um, with politics. It wasn't as like politics was actually boring. You know, like. And people wasn't all people weren't scrolling through it and arguing over it. It was really boring because people like, you know, talking about building bridges or, you know, like you know trade deficits or you know stuff that there were political nerds like a small band of people who were interested in that. But this the the tone of, I think our public discourse is incredibly anxious. But then I think also like the threats that we see in the world. Um, so. I think I may quote him. I can't remember if I do or not in the book, but Ulrich Beck, the German sociologist, he, he had this theory that sort of different to where everyone else was thinking about where the world was going. Everyone thought the world's going to head to, you know, this better place. He was talking about the more modern we become, the more risky the world is. And I think that that's true. So, for example, AI, the more we develop computers, AI, you know, got people like Elon Musk saying it could sort of end up destroying us or the environment, the more that we create these solutions, the more environmental problems they may create, or the more that the world's connected, it's fantastic that you can jump on a, a plane and fly from you know, here in Australia to London in 22 hours, um, where you used to take a month by a boat, but then a disease can, can, be, you know, a, 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 can travel from one side of the world really quickly. So I think that's also driving the anxiety. And you look at, um, you know, the war in Ukraine at the moment. Um, you look at, I think, other potential wars. You know, I think you look at the rise of China. We're not just seeing this as, oh, that's something I looked at at the six o'clock news and I don't think about the rest of the time. It's before us continually. So that creates, I think, this broader, almost complete culture of anxiety. Yeah. Um, and I... And I, I want to move more. We've talked a lot about the problem. I want to move a mm. little bit more towards the solution. Um, you have this line 
in there and you say you know god seeds leaders with his dream of renewal and it's in the, the renewal in the leader that leads to the um to the renew of you know the the church or the church that you're leading or so or the country or, or whatever that is um i would love to hear from you of how like how can that renewal start like in the in the leader well i think what happens when, when you're leading is easy with, if you don't have to do two things. One is lead people <laughs> and, and, and basically not deal with a changing complex world. Um, if everything was the same all the time and, and you're leading a group of robots, leading is easy, easy. So people create crises and people live in a changing world and it's a complex world and it just throws problems at you. So, so much of leadership is dealing with problems. So you've got your vision but then there's the road of how to get there. And the road is filled with twists and turns and hurdles and problems. So what I always, a lot of leaders begin and we're very heavy in our culture on, on vision and capture your dream and you know run towards the goal. But what we don't equip people with is how do you then, when you run into a wall, you know, like there's the classic saying, you know, the boxer had a plan until they got hit. And I feel like that's, that's this truth moment. Like at that moment, what, what you really believe is revealed. And, uh, you know, I have this sense of we have a lot of values, um, which we like to bring, but interesting, it's actually in the raw encounter of leading in the real world that your values are tested. So, for example, I saw an interview last night with the New Zealand Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, and it was just fascinating. So she, she brought in a vaccine mandate, similar to what happened in Australia. And someone said to her, you know, do you, you, you said you wouldn't bring in a vaccine mandate. You said you don't like vaccine mandates. And she's like, I don't. I still don't like them. Um, but I brought them in because I had to. And part of me is like, that's fascinating. You're differentiating between your values and what you actually had to do there. So I think that's what a lot of leaders are like. I don't want to have to do this. I don't want to have to be the bad guy. I don't want to have to disappoint people. But then in the rawness of leadership, you do. You realize I'm not going to be popular. I think a lot of leaders begin thinking, I'm going to be popular. I'm going to do, I'm going to be different to all those other leaders who aren't popular. And I'm going to do this. We're the first one to do this and, and, and you know, retain popularity and achieve everything I feel like I'm being called to. When that happens, you hit a crisis when you realize that, hang on, this is different to what I thought. People are seeing me differently. People are misunderstanding me. And in the midst of that crisis, what happens is people leave or they push deeper into power and they bash through people. And I felt like actually that's the moment, that's a renewal opportunity. So leaders have to reframe that moment as a renewal opportunity where actually you realize, hang on, this is not my, this is not my vision, it's God's vision. Am I open to being changed? And you know, there's a Dutch saying that, you know, the, the leader has to fall off the horse and get back up on it. And I think it's that fall off the horse moment is when we then can go deeper where God does something new in us. And interestingly, that new thing he does in us flows outwards. And that's actually often what gets us to where then we're meant to go. Mm. You know, I, I just had this thought going back to um, what we were talking about earlier with, with understanding history and understanding mm. other people's cultures. And um, I don't know, just seeing like, maybe there's a connection between what we were just talking about right now. I don't know any thoughts on that. Mm. Yeah, I definitely. Like I saw that pattern in history. You know, I, I as I've read leaders' biographies, be they Christian leaders and, and often even just, you know, I guess leaders in the in the secular world, so often they hit this tragedy, a crisis, a, a turning point. And that's really when leadership begins, I think. So I think that's an absolute pattern. I, I when I read particularly Christian leaders who managed to turn things around i could not find an example of where they did not hit some sort of absolute crisis like i'm, I'm yet to read the christian biography of his this, this this guy or gal who basically like has here's this plan everything's wonderful and then they achieve their plan i've not read that book i don't think that person exists but i think we culturally believe it you know and and it's just this constant thing that you're going to hit crises and and suffering Let's just let's be honest. The crisis brings suffering, but then turning that suffering to God, then there's this, I think, resurrection moment. Yeah. What are some of the the qualities, characteristics that you see in like those types of leaders? Mm. It's interesting. I think it's less about a charisma, a talent, a positional power, as it is in saying yes to God in the hardest moments. Of realizing that actually this is not about you, it's about him. 
And it's not about what you're doing, it's about what he's doing in you. And I think the understanding of that, and not everyone begins with that, but I, I think people who get through that are the ones who understand that. And so, so there's a sense of surrender at the, at the, at, that has to happen at that moment. You know, um, you know, Dry Moody has this, this moment where he's walking through New York and he's just overcome with God and goes up to his friend's house and prays upstairs. You know, Ignatius Loyola gets hit by a cannonball and goes and, you know, how hides that in this cave. <laughs> God does this thing in him. John Wesley, you know, freaks out on a, a crossing the Atlantic. You just see the stories again and again and again. So I don't think it's like a characteristic. Sorry, it's, it's not a talent. Like it's not a, a natural uh, ability those people have at that moment. Mm -hmm. Rather, it's actually a characteristic of saying yes. Uh, it can happen to anyone from any background, but it's the saying of yes at that time. Talk to me about like navigating with that with that mind with that mindset that posture of surrender, um, while leading people. Still, yeah. <laughs> because like yeah. I could I could just imagine for myself of like okay if it's if it's just me like that is a very that's an easier thing to do mm. as opposed to like a, you feel a responsibility to mm. to the other people that you're leading. Mm -hmm. I think the first thing is getting the. The, the relationship between the, the hidden and the public or the private and the public, right? And I think often when you are leading, you're in a public sphere. So you, you feel like everyone sees you. And then what can happen is you can construct this public self. And the public self can often get detached from, from who you are. Um, and, you know, you see that. You see the, the well, probably more you see it in like, you know, like sort of almost the, Elvis at the end becomes a parody of himself, you know, and um, but that can happen to leaders. That can happen to Christian leaders where you become this parody of yourself. You're surrounded by yes people. They're telling you what you want to hear. You become a parody of yourself. Um, but this, this, what we're talking about here happens in, in the hidden place. It happens in, in the private places first. It's, you know, who, who are you when no one's looking? What are you, what's your relationship with God in that private space? You know, and I think, you know, the scriptures talk about humans being living temples, believers being living temples and the, the presence dwelling in us. And if you think about the, the, the temp temple, it had the holiest of holies. It was this very hidden place of communion with God, um, sacred place. I think, you know, we have that in us now. So I think leaders in that crisis moment get that chance to actually invest in that place, to prioritize it. And that's the space where God works in us. And I think that the public stuff is always overflow. We get it the wrong way. We think the public stuff, if I get all that great, it's going to feed me. No, no, it's actually our relationship with God, closeness to the vine, John 15, that then actually feeds the public stuff. It's always overflow. Mm. Um, so I think that's how, and when a crisis happens, it's an opportunity to get that, that balance right. Mm. Talk to me about what leading with that surrender mindset look, mm. looks like. When you don't have that relationship right, you are feeding yourself on your own fruit. <laughs> and I think if we think about fruitfulness, being close to the vine, we can get that wrong in a success-driven culture that, oh, I'm going to produce this fruit and I'm, I'm going to get something from it. Um, you know, I, I've had the experience multiple times. I remember the first few times it happened where I'm like, I go somewhere, I speak somewhere, I do some kind of ministry or I write something. And it is almost irrelevant to me what's happening because it's just like I'm just a purely delivery mechanism for what God's doing. And you go somewhere and there's, you know, people write to you, that was amazing. You're like, oh, okay. I sort of turned up and spoke. And I remember for the first time going, yeah, you're not doing this for yourself. You're actually doing this for me. I felt God saying that. And this sense that when, you, when you're leading in a surrender position, you're willing to be a vessel for God. We don't want to be a vessel. We want to be the, you know, we want to be what's in the vessel <laughs> um, where actually when you're a vessel, you're empty. And so you have to empty yourself of your, even your own ambitions, your own dreams and surrender them. That's the hardest thing. People can, you know, I know lots of people can surrender where they live, money, all these different things, but actually surrendering your dreams and your expected outcomes for life, that's much harder but I think there's something beautiful when there's someone who's humbly um, um, surrendered because also what happens then is you can also make it about other people. Um, you can make it about other people. This this Easter, um, you know, normally I preach on Easter, um, but this Easter I've handed it on to someone else because I just really felt the Lord saying, no, I'm doing something this person. Ha let them do it. So I'll just be, I'll just be a pew sitter this Easter 
Um, and that's not because I'm super tired or anything. I could do a sermon. I'm sure I could do something great. But but I thought God is building something beyond me. There's a point where either I pass on or go to the retirement village, you know, <laughs> the retirement village in the sky, or the retirement village here. And and what what at that moment, you want to have people who have been released into what God's doing in them because you've been an empty vessel. So God can do something in you. So you're not dominating the story. It almost just makes me think of, um, I mean, kind of what you're doing, like giving, giving people the opportunity whenever you don't have to give people the opportunity. Yes. Um, yeah. Were, were you going to say something? Oh, no, no, no. Just agreeing. Yeah. Okay. Uh, another thing that I want to talk about, which really intrigued me uh, throughout the book, is you talk about this idea of strongholds, and mm-hmm. you you talk about them in the world, and you also talk about uh, our own personal strongholds as well. And I would love for uh, just for you to talk about that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, strongholds is a word that you know often you hear in the Christian world, and you know, maybe in two ways, you know, you may hear about in Psalms where, you know, it's spoken of God as a stronghold, or you may hear it sort of maybe in part of the charismatic church or whatever, sort of a spiritual stronghold. And it's interesting if, if when you think about what a stronghold is, a stronghold is like a fortified place. It can be somewhere where you go for protection. It can be a natural thing like a mountain or whatever. And you look in war often, you know, the defenders will take the higher ground and, you know, finding a defensive position from a from a mountain, it's easier than trying to attack up a mountain. So if you think about the the, the Israelites, they were people who were nomadic people and, you know, they're often moving around. And at times you didn't have protection. And so you think about once we as humans start to do something good, you know, if we start farming or we start a village, often what people would do, go back hundreds or thousands of years, they build the fortifications around that place. We still do that. We now have borders and border guards and militaries and, you know, missiles and all that sort of stuff. And, and what you realize is that humans create these strongholds of protection. So one way I thought about it is I thought if in the Old Testament, if you think of someone who's traveling, we have this romantic view of traveling now, you know, wandering through a desert and looking at nature. But it was really scary back then. So if you're going from one, say in the biblical times in the ancient world, going from one city to another city, the in-between time, you were, you were really worried because you get hit by bandits, run out of food, wild animals. And so they were looking for the strongholds. Um, so we build strongholds to protect ourselves, and that can be a good thing, but it can turn into an alternate form of worship apart from God. And so a lot of this language that you see in Scripture of, of God as a stronghold, you see it in the Psalms, you see it in other places, is actually the reminder for humans not to make their strongholds in things of the world but actually make their strongholds in God. So yes, we need to sometimes build defensive walls, but we need to do that. We need to make sure those defensive walls don't become an idol. And you know, my argument was that a lot of what happens in a phase or an era of history is that actually the strongholds define us. You know, so I talk about the American century. The world has been arranged around an American order since really the end of World War II. Before that, it was the British Empire. You go through all the different empires and you go to different parts of the world. You know, you know, Mali was a, was an empire at a time. You know, in South America, Aztecs. You know, we always have these stronghold, uh, you know, places. Um, and I think people don't see that dynamic. And what I realized is that we can do that for ourselves. Like, what are our strongholds where we find a, a sense of protection, a sense of meaning? But also, sometimes those walls can keep out bad stuff, but they can also keep God out as well. So that's the essence of what I was trying to reintroduce people to an understanding of what a stronghold is, because I think what's happening in this time is our strongholds are falling because we're in a, a shift a phase of history is shifting and we can sort of feel panicked when our strongholds fall. But actually, that's an opportunity to turn back to God. Um, so I think a lot of cultural anxiety comes when we see our strongholds shaken. Um, and that's an invitation to say, hang on. Where are my strong? Where is my faith really placed in? Yeah, uh, just just this idea I had while going through the book, and I'd be curious for your thoughts too. Is um is how free speech plays into the strongholds as well? Because at least right now, you know, here here in the uh, you know the U.S., it feels like freedom of speech is a very big topic that has got everybody's mm. attention right now. And I'd just be mm. curious to hear your thoughts on. Because I have I have my own of how it plays um, yeah. into the strongholds and stuff, but would love to hear your perspective. Well, it's actually interesting going back to what we spoke about at the start, where you can see um, 
in the 17th century in England, where a lot of this thought actually comes from. And you had you had a royal government and you had Anglicanism as a state church. And the original first speech, free speech debate at that time was, should evangelicals have the ability to have free speech and print pamphlets and so on? Um, and you had this pushback on it. What was interesting is then when finally the Puritans and Oliver Cromwell create their republic, very quickly after them benefiting from this freedom of information and freedom of speech, uh, they then basically instigated several uh, censorship and started shutting down the printing presses. So it's a really fascinating dynamic that, uh, you know, I, I, I'm just, this is why I'm fascinated sort of coming up again now. And I think to be honest, a lot of it is more about an information rich environment that has been created by the internet so what happens is, um, I think it's Carl Miller, uh, uh, he's, uh, I think, a tech writer, if I'm getting his name right. Um, he said that whenever there's a new technology or a power shift, you have to invent new rules. Um, and uh, that's what happened in, in the 17th century in England. All of a sudden, these printing presses meant that it wasn't just the scribes or the religious authority, political authority that was able to publish information you know, any guy with a printing press or money to pay someone with a printing press could put out a pamphlet. We have that now with the internet. I, I actually think if you didn't have the internet, we wouldn't be having these free speech debates because mm -hmm. a lot of it is actually about how do you police someone who has, you know, when everyone in humanity can publish, you know, what, what does that do? Um, and, you know, and, and what does it mean when the president or <laughs> someone in another country can, can, can say things um, how, how do you work this out? So I actually think a lot of this is actually a grey zone dynamic of an emerging technology, and we don't know how to facilitate that. So I don't think we'd be have, we we came to solution with free speech. So like you look at all of the you know stuff from the 17th century in England, and then you know in 1688 in, in Britain sort of creates this constitutional monarchy, and then the US when um, it creates a republic, a lot of that was based on Anglo-American thought of free speech is really important. But the, 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 the dynamics were, um, uh, and it, it, it changed a little bit. If you look at even um, the beginning of mass media, you know, like people like Randolph Hearst, you know, he, when, he, when we had one powerful guy who could control the newspapers, you know, what did that mean for free speech? Yeah, so I think a lot of it's actually about power shifts and technological change, but it definitely can be a stronghold. And often free speech is dependent on who's in power, <laughs> their definition of free speech, which is really, really interesting. Yeah. A uh, couple of other things I want to get uh, your thoughts on. You have, you have another quote of the book, uh, which has just, uh, just stuck with me ever since I've read it. Is you talk about um, the importance of, uh, and you use the analogy of, of chess, and you say, you know, um, you know, how you tell the skill of a good chess player is their ability to play without their queen piece mm. and you mentioned how you know the church our queen piece can sometimes tend to be the weekend experience the weekend services mm. um and that oh maybe we have we have tended to lean a little bit uh too too much into the queen i would love your thoughts on what does it look like to play without the queen or what are you learning of, about what it looks like to play without the queen mm. yeah so I mean, that was a great thought that came from my friend, Alan Hirsch, uh, who's a fellow Melbourne person. And he, he said at the beginning of the pandemic, yeah, we, the Queen's been our Sunday services. We can't do them. You know? um, and I think for me, the first thing that it showed was how we can set up ministry for cultural Christians. And what I mean by that is people who come and they come habitually and they come because part of their identity. It could be their family identity. Could just be something that they do. It could be their ethnic identity. In some cultures, it's like I'm Croatian, so I'm Catholic, or I'm Serbian, and I'm Orthodox. Um, and all of a sudden, you didn't have this captive audience every week, and you didn't have these people who just would turn up habitually. And then you ask the question, well, what is the church? So often we, you know, we've said, you know, the preacher said, the church isn't just Sundays. But all of a sudden, that went as I went, said before, that was a value that now you're leading in real time. Um, and this isn't just about, you know, the pandemic. It was interesting. I saw, I saw a video um, by um, the pastor of Hillsong, Kiev, in, in Ukraine. And it was fascinating. And they were interviewing him and he just said, you know, our church has changed now. We, we can't run services. We're just delivering food. 
And I thought that's really interesting. So I feel like what happens when you take the, the queen off the off the off the the chessboard, you ask how effective are our Sunday services? What are the elements that we're called to be in the church that we can do when it's not just the Sunday services? What does it mean to belong? What does it mean to really shape people? What does it mean to give experiences? All of a sudden, it was this pause and reset moment, um, which I think now we're coming out of always, you know, it depends where you are in the world. There's still places locked down, like Hong Kong and places like that. But I think that it's been this fascinating, really important. I mean, I was shocked. And, and you know, there's lots of people where, I mean, we were, we were shut down for longer. But I know people in, in, in the US where they were shut down for six weeks and lost 30% of their people. That leads me to the question of why were they there? <laughs> and and that's tough. And people go, you know, like, and, and there's an element where people are like, oh, the, it, it's the lockdown is why they left. I'm like, nah, like six weeks. If they left after six weeks of a lockdown, there was a pre-existing problem. And that's why one of my other lines, I don't know if I said it in the book or not, but I say it around is there was a virus before the virus. Mm. And I think the pandemic more like peeled back the carpet and you saw the state of the floorboards underneath, whether they were rotting. And I think... Um, yeah, so that, that's a few thoughts. Yeah, um, I want to go back and and we talked about it, it earlier that it uh, I forgot about it and then you brought it up again. Um, I would love your thoughts on situations or circumstances to where you're you're in them and you do have your values, but you are in circumstances that, for one reason or another, you are not able to live out your values because it's a it's just a a, a tough decision. A tough decision either way. I'd be curious on how do you navigate situations like that? Mm. Well, I think humility is a big part of it. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I wasn't a fan of digital church and, um, you know, I still have thoughts about it, but it was really interesting. I remember, um, and I think I talk about it in the book, I, at the end of 2019, we had, we have, you know, here in Melbourne, we have a number of Iranian people, refugees, which have a lot in this area. And a lot uh, have become Christians, and there's this big move of God happening amongst the Iranian Persian people. And we had some visitors of a ministry who works with Persian people, and, and they were showing us at the end of 2019 how they do church. And they have services they record in Farsi in, in London, and that goes all throughout the um, Persian diaspora. It goes on certain cable TV or on the internet. So people who can't legally gather, that's how they do it. They watch it online. And and. And I looked at that and I didn't make any connection between that and then what was going to happen in six months where we would be doing the same thing. Now, at that point, I'd been about a month before that, I was at another meeting where I was with some churches here in Melbourne and like, we've got to push into digital church. And I was like, Ugh. it had my values on it. And I remember realizing like when the pandemic began, it's actually situations change. And I had to be humble as someone who'd pushed back, like, we have to do this now and had to lead into it. Not only do we had to do digital church, I had to like convince my congregation that this was a good space and this still could be church. So I think for me, that was a humble place. And really interesting, like where we find ourselves now, we're in a new environment. And, and I was just asked to be on a thing of people who are going forward with, with digital church, but we're not sure as, as a congregation, you know, like after two years of this, um, is it the best way to form people? So, like, I find there's these constant humble things of, like, I don't know. Circumstances may change. And there's there's a difference between that and just complete moral laxity of being, you know, mm-hmm. tossed like the, like the waves. But I think it's more being humble and realising that at different stages to achieve different goals, you've got to have some sort of tactical stri- flexibility is yeah. the way I'd put it. But when, you're, when you're, your identity is caught up in these things, um, you know, I'm that guy who's against that. Uh, you 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 get stuck, I think, and and that can really wound the people you're leading because you're focusing on your identity as the person who believes that thing versus having that flexibility. Any practices that help you fight against that tendency in yourself? I think it's it's that's a great question. I I, I think it's looking what the environment looking at the looking at the environment in terms of what's actually happening versus what you think you're seeing Mm. if that makes sense oh yeah um so you know like so for example i think there's different like it's almost if you look at the pandemic there's been phases of the pandemic like the pandemic wasn't one thing there was different strains there was different challenges there was 
there was vaccines at one point, there's therapies, there's all different kinds of things. You couldn't do the same thing the whole time. Uh, and in anything, you know, in a war, there's different phases. In a, in a sporting game, there's different phases of the game. But, you know, the, the, later in the game, people are more tired. Your tactics change. So I think you've got to play the game as the environment and the determining factors are versus what you think they should be at that time. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's good. Uh, um, one one last thing I want to uh, just ask you is, is there anything that we haven't covered or haven't talked about that is just top of mind that's like, yep, I want to make sure that I mention this? Yeah, I think I think for those listening, I think, you know, the world very much seems in crisis and there's tremendous challenges coming at us. You know, I think we're still in the midst of a global pandemic. I mean, I think there's some countries which are moving on, other countries in the West, but it's still affecting the world. The fact that China now is, is you know, hugely challenged with you know, how they're approaching it, but that's going to have massive effects on the global supply chain. We're having effects on the global supply chain from when China shut down the first time in 2020. Um, you look at Ukraine and, and you know, as, as to go to air, I just seen reports of chemical weapons being used when I looked at Twitter this morning and, and uh there's a possibility that campaign will that that war will, will spread out possibly into other countries. We just don't know. I think the economy um, there's tremendous challenges. There's environmental challenges. Uh, we are just seeing days of flood. Like we're seeing Australia is fascinating in that we where how we're positioned is that we're just seeing significant extremes of crazy stuff in the environment we've just not seen before because of sort of where we're placed in the world. Um, you know, I think politically it's it's fascinating. Uh, you know, we've got major elections coming up. You know, I know that often Americans will think about perhaps 2024 as this big sort of heavyweight battle coming, but we've got the Brazilian election this year between Lula and Bolsonaro. We've got the French uh, second round election between Marine Le Pen and Macron. All these massive elections, which in the past no one cared about. So there's so much tumult in the world. And so people seeing this can get quite anxious I think how I see it, I think for many years, I felt like a prophet of doom trying to show people when things were in the previous phase. It may not stay like this. I feel now like God's calling me increasingly to be a prophet of hope that despite these things, you know, I think there's a really upside that's happening in the church. I'm having conversations with churches I never thought I'd have a conversation with who are feeling this call to change, individuals feeling this call to change, people you bump into in the street feeling this call to change, thinking about faith who've never thought about faith. So actually, I just, you know, I think the big point is, I think in the midst of all of this, this crisis, you know, one of the big things God's having on for several years now is crisis precedes renewal. And, you know, I'm really hopeful that God's building a remnant in his church. I know many people may see people leaving. That's not necessarily a bad thing. <laughs> if people are leaving who were not there for the right reasons, that's not necessarily a bad thing. And again, stepping back in that great sweep of history, getting that critical distance is it's always at moments like this that God turns things around. And I think what this book is about is he turns certain leaders around, you know, and there's so much talk of like, the pressure that individual people in the pure feeling to pastors, uh, pressure wanting to leave, that actually that's an opportunity and invitation. So I think that's the big extra point that I would communicate that I actually think something one, we're going to look back in 30, 40 years, maybe a hundred years, and we won't look back future historians, but I just think that this could be the moment before something really beautiful happens. Uh, real quick, can you talk to me about being being that prophet of hope and like what that what that looks like for you? Yeah, for me, it's having my hope rooted not in the environment and what's happening, but actually who God is and what He's doing. And I think that a lot of hope is like, oh, things are going to get better because you know, like. Uh, you know, the biggest challenge I've, I've felt often in my faith is I've met people from countries in the developing world who have been in war and conflict, gone through terrible things, and yet are far more hopeful and joyful than I am. And that's because they just can't place it in, in the world. They don't, they don't expect it, you know. And I, and I feel like we've got to learn from that. And, and I think the journey God has me on is, you know, seeing in the midst of this an eternal perspective, God's purposes in history, not just what we're seeing on our screens or in the daily news or what we're feeling uh, is going on. Um, God always turns up. And, you know, I think uh, his heart is for redemption and renewal and resurrection. And, and yeah, that, that I'm focused on that now. Um, and that enables me to speak into the culture in a different way. 
Well, Mark, I know that people are going to want to keep up with you and get, you know, a non-anxious presence and all of that stuff. Where's the best place for people to go to do all those things? Oh, wherever you, it's classic cliche, you know, good books are sold. Um, so all the classic places you go online, Christian book and Amazon, Barnes and Noble and all those. Is Barnes and Noble still going in the US? I think they are. Um, we I, don't have them uh, here. I think so. Yes. Um, uh, yeah. So wherever good books are sold, um, uh, yeah, you can find it. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. And thanks for doing the work and for sharing it with us. Oh, absolute pleasure. So I think coming out of that conversation, first of all, this is going to be something that I, this is going to be a book that I already know I'm going to come back to again and again and again for it, just because, uh, it's, it's one of those books that it just makes, again, it just makes me think on, uh, and just next level type of thing. And that's one of the reasons why I love learning from Mark is because I feel like he is, uh, just constant like he is almost he almost operate like whenever people get to one the level that he is currently talking about i feel like he is already on to the next one and so i always love learning about that about people who are on just the cutting edge and learning about that stuff i think coming out of that conversation there's a couple of things that really stood out to me in it and i think the first one is what he talked about in terms of moving from a complicated world to a complex world and I remember whenever I first heard him talk about it, I think it was uh, somewhere on the Kerry Newhoff Leadership Podcast. And that just idea of moving from um, from this world that wasn't as connected to this world that is so much more uh, connected to each other. And that, you know, a change in one thing doesn't only change the next thing, but it could change multiple things around it as well. And so just thinking in terms of uh, complex systems and realizing that we were uh, in a much more complex world and seeing, you know, even for me, if my, my decisions uh, as it pertains to um, as me being a leader of realizing that it doesn't just affect, uh, you know, the next thing, it can affect multiple things as well. And so just being more aware of that as well and uh and just you know as we're seeing uh in like the supply chain you know now with uh and it, and it's getting it's getting better than it was but like paper shortage as well as just one way uh of an example that i think about that i think the other thing that really stands out to me from uh this is just the idea that uh of the leader uh, go, go, going to the desert and experiencing personal renewal. And it is that uh, personal renewal. It is that personal growth. It is that personal discovery that ultimately is what leads to, um, you know, community renewal or society renewal or, you know, in, in this context, you know, church re renewal is that renewal starts with the leader. And I think for me, that is something that I have um, really been challenged by lately. If um, paying attention to, to myself more, of uh, paying attention to, um, to my own patterns, to my own thoughts, and realizing uh, for me that I need a lot more time to myself. I need time uh, for me, I need time with, uh, with God as well. And I need more time in reflection and, in learning and, and I think understanding and realizing that it's through that it's through this, uh, personal renewal that will overflow into the life of the people that I care about the most. And yeah, those, those are just a couple of things I'm, uh, as I mentioned, you know, this book has got me thinking so much that I'm sure at some point I will, you know, share more of my thoughts as well. Now, if you've been listening to this podcast for a while and, you know, maybe you have a guest or you have, 
an idea or a subject that you would love us to cover on the podcast, I would love to hear from you. And the best way to reach out to me is learnerscornerpodcast at gmail.com. Would love to hear from you there and even just some of the things that you're learning from as well. And yeah, don't forget to leave a rating and write a review of the podcast. That means a lot and helps us spread uh, the word about the podcast and if you enjoyed this episode be sure to share this episode as well and i think that's all that i have for today so i do want to say thank you to sam massey for providing the music for this podcast thank you to mark for being on this podcast as well thank you the listener for you know for listening all the way to the end of this episode my name is caleb mason and until next time keep learning and keep growing